Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. We're so head down, bum up, focusing on ocean uh, protection and plastic in particular and other sort of pollutions and pollutants in our waterways. But the big thing that we saw in our industry is that everyone's talking about the problem of ocean plastic as an example, but no one's talking about causes and then no one's talking about potential solutions and and people talk about from our perspective they'll use the they use a like a, a mop and bucket approach there's a big a lot of attention around boy and slat with these ocean cleanup projects you know trying to capture pollution after it's already in the ocean yeah great idea but very cost ineffective uh it's far better to capture pollution at the source you know we're, we're basically trying to create community awareness around the real cause of this issue which is land-based sources of pollution and then subsequently what we can do about it. I've never heard anyone say, oh, you know what, uh, 14% of uh, greenhouse gas emissions is is from uh, transport. A portion of that is uh, shipping and transport uh, and goods and services, etc. And and then subsequently what we can actually do in terms of an alternative arrangement to the status quo. Mm, 90% of the world trade and sh- is done through shipping. I've never heard that. 90% of the world's trade is done through shipping. Wow. So we're heavily dependent on those ships, aren't we? And some of those ships are, you know, they've got a lifespan of like 20 to 30 years. Do you think a big part of this issue is the fact that there are some very heavy hitting big companies in in power, basically with a Jesus, lot of- Jesus, you're a bit naive, mate. I'm just saying, like, is, is that a, like, it's, it, we talk about political leadership, et cetera, but I think it's a lot, of the, a lot of the ways the world is run by big companies with a vested interest in keeping things the way they are. Obviously, big companies with big shipping fleets, et cetera, are making a lot of money moving goods and products all around the world. They more or less want to keep things the way they are. And if it all goes to hell, well, they'll look to protect themselves somehow. Well, they are being the most progressive. This is what's so exciting, bro. Okay. Because the International Maritime Organization and CAFI, so we've got the maritime version, we've got the aviation version, they now are putting a downward global regulatory pressure on how to decarbonize these both high-intensive fuel-dependent um, sectors and industries who are going to need liquid fuels for a very long time. So they're putting some really huge game-changing 
accountability targets on how they can decarbonize and reduce emissions. And, and the pathway for that, it's all well and good that you can offset, but you can only offset to some capacity. If you really want to get some of those big 20, 30, 40% reductions in place, you've got to start looking at how the actual product and fuel use you're using. So for them, the opportunity is through low carbon fuel. So a biojet fuel, Biojet fuels are obviously the alternative from the petroleum, full petroleum version, a lot lower carbon intensity. Some of these fuels can be anywhere from 80 to 90% less CO2 comparative to the fossil fuel version. So that's aviation and shipping are actually being the most progressive because they understand that this is the future of where they need to go. So industry themselves are setting their own targets and then driving their own change. Mandate. Wow. That's pretty unusual, isn't it? That is unusual. Mm. Are we actually seeing a transition towards more use of biofuels? Absolutely. Some powerful partnerships and collaborations between, um, we've got like Lufthansa and Neste and all, like we've got all these different big renewable fuel producers in the world who are now working alongside with huge airlines like, you know, United Airlines and all the different names. I won't rattle them all off, but they're they're working together to go, well, let's do a 5% biojet blend. So all flights out of LA now have a biojet blend of fuel in them. Yeah, and like I saw Branson yep, a few years ago, it. didn't it? Like he's trialling biofuel and engine. I mean, they're all trialling it. This is the thing. What's the go? The fuel is mimics, is exact same hydrocarbons. I won't get too chemically for everybody. Do, do, do. Yeah. <laughs> on it. We're looking out at the ocean and I'm going to be talking about <laughs> hydrocarbons. So this is the thing. Biofuels, the ethanol and the biodiesel that I talked about, Yes, you're correct. You have to make some modifications to your engine to some degree. The new vehicles that are coming through now, the Euro 5 and Euro Spec 6 vehicles that are coming into this country are all compatible to take E10 and biodiesel blends. Mm-hmm. They just are. It's the Euro 6 specs. We import them in. They've got legislations in place that enforce that at the tailpipe, the cars must have less sulfur and particulate yep. matter. Not not Volkswagen though, eh? No, well, they got caught out. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's, that's changing and that's moving, progressing. So the renewable fuel, so renewable diesel, which is more advanced fuel and a renewable jet fuel. So we've got the first generation, the ones I just talked about, and the second generation. The second generation completely mimic the petroleum version. So ethanol and biodiesel do mimic, but they're usually blended with petroleum to some degree. So biodiesel might be 50% biodiesel, 50% diesel. Mm. Don't get me wrong. Some of these diesel vehicles can take 100%. It's not a problem. Same with ethanol. You could run your car on ethanol, but it might kind of – get a little bit annoyed eventually. Yeah. But the new cars that are in now, it wouldn't even notice. Well, actually on that, so I've got to replace uh, my exhaust pipe because uh, running it on ethanol uh, means I need to put a stainless steel exhaust pipe in, otherwise it's just going to rust. So yeah. these are the type of things yeah. that you have to think about. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's exactly right. So, so you're talking about renewable fuels Renew- is 100% the same as? Yes, lower carbon intensity. So the carbon embedded in that fuel is much lower, which means it's got like a 90% comparative to normal fossil diesel and normal fossil ethanol. So just to confirm, that's a 90% reduction in CO2 emissions – yeah. From a biodiesel relative to the standard status quo diesel. Yep. At the tailpipe, you can get a 90% That's, reduction. That is substantial. That is massive. And what does it cost? Like the fuel. 
Sorry, yeah, it's yeah. not at price parity. The renewable fuels aren't, the yeah. you know, the more advanced ones that I talked about. So the ones that need to go into the aeroplanes, biojet fuel has to have the right specs, obviously, yeah, and, sure. and specifications for it. So those fuels are not comparative at price compared to normal jet fuel. Okay. Because well, so you go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. but hold on. If I'm getting a 90% reduction in CO2 emissions – Surely I should be getting some credit from someone. But yes. Yeah, you should, but there's no currently – there's no carbon tax or there's no – No, okay, but we're talking about in Australia. What, show, tell me some examples that this is happening around the world. And, Larissa, I'm not telling you how to do your own job, but, we, you know, you're the bio-fuel girl, bio, um, fuel girl right? Queen. Queen. Queen or king, we're gender Chip. neutral here, we're all good. No, but let's take examples from around the world mm. and take them to government and go, well, this is where it's happening. I mean, it, it, you know, can you tell us, the listeners, where, where apart from Brazil, that's working? Absolutely. There are 65 countries around the world that have a biofuel mandate, which enforces ethanol and biodiesel. We just got our second state in Australia to do it. To talk about this federally feels like I'm going to take my head and knock it on that wall that's sitting there beside us. There is no national progressive leadership to go, yeah, well, we've looked at pathways on how we can decarbonise electrification of everything and stop using coal fired power. So let's look at a pathway now how we can decarbonise our heavy dependency and for a very, very long time in this country, reliant on liquid fossil fuels. Let's develop a policy and a pathway to help decarbonise liquid fossil fuels out of this country, create our own fuel security, help agriculture, use different products and waste streams. There's technologies out there and there's pathways to enable those byproducts and waste products to be converted and made into renewable fuels. Hey, California, let's look at you. Most progressive state in the world Agreed. who has taken leadership in enabling and decarbonising their dependency on liquid fossil fuels. One, they've put incentives, mechanisms, tax excises for people who purchase the fuels, people that produce the fuels. And if you produce fuels that are even lower carbon intensity, so the life cycle analysis of those fuels is even greater, you get credits for that. You're incentivized for producing and making those fuels. So you as the offtake, the local council, the state Californian government, who's like, yeah, we've got probably about 50,000 diesel fleet. Let's purchase some of that renewable diesel from the producer, other producers in the country, and we'll get an excise. And that will make it cost comparative. If not, makes it even cheaper than buying the diesel version. That is the most progressive so, state in the world. Well, actually, we, we agree because as far as stormwater pollution is concerned, we're uh, doing a, a zero litter to ocean target here in Australia. Two councils have signed on in New South Wales. That was born out of the, the, the state of California in 2009. Yep. 2009, they went, right, we've got to get litter out of our ocean and what are we going to do about it? So good on you, California. I mean, they seem to be killing it everywhere. Why? <laughs> it's, it's Californians. Probably, is that because of the Arnold Schwarzenegger superstar? Did he lead the charge on that one? He was part of that progressive change. He is a Absolute. superstar. Absolutely. Oh, mate, he's, well. He's, he's my hero. The Eastern Curlo is the new <laughs> superstar. <laughs> but do you know what annoys me the worst out of that? Over 65 countries around the world that have a policy in place to ensure that there's biofuels inside that fuel energy matrix that I talked about. Yeah, yeah, go. Some of those are like just barely developed countries. If you say New Zealand, New Zealand <laughs> no, I will get you. You know, this room ain't big enough. Is, is New Zealand, is New Zealand, New Zealand one of those? New Zealand biofuels, yes. <laughs> but this is, this is the thing that I find 
most weird. We're all going to have to go this way anyway. Like we're talking about that our current system is using non-renewable sources of energy. There, it's not a bottomless pit. We are eventually going to run out of fossil fuels. It's as simple as that. And it's certainly going to be they're going to be at least far more expensive as they're harder and harder to extract out of the earth. So it's obviously it's good to jump on the bandwagon now. It, it would be good to actually lead by example and also obviously when you're first to market or you first to adopt a technology or, or if you're an innovator in this field, it's very economically uh, fortunate for those yeah, countries. Aussies don't like being first. Yeah, well, to some extent, I, I agree with you. You know, no, no, it's a big thing. You know, like when we go and pitch something we, to, an, to, to a council or whatever, they're like, oh, has this been done anywhere else? <laughs> it's like, no, but it's yeah. new and it's exciting. Why don't we do it? But when it comes to everything else, sport, you know, cricket, yeah, no, a, a, okay, Olympics, okay, et cricket, I'll give you that. We, wanna, we will always want to be first. We want to be punching above our weight. Yeah, we why can't we, we do it in this? This is the thing. When it comes to environmental uh, – sorry, when it comes to leadership on environmental issues, we're always the backseat drivers. We're always sort of watching what everyone else is doing. Why can't we lead by example? Oh. Why can't we punch above our weight? Well, because we need more passionate people like the two of you sitting here. No, Absolutely, we and I don't want to be. I go overseas and I talk so much about where we're at and obviously I represent the industry and I've spoken at many conferences and one trip when I was in California, I was sitting in Sacramento, which is their Canberra version, and they were talking and asking me about, well, what's your policies, what's going on? Because I was there to go, what are your mechanisms, what are your frameworks, what can we take as a blueprint to embed and I can take back to fight and advocate in Australia? And they were asking simple 101 questions. So have you guys got any like low carbon policies or programs on a national level to incentivize the uptake and use of low carbon solutions, I sit there cowering in my chair going, no. So let's dumb it down yeah, for yeah, the yeah, politicians yeah, yeah. of the world and recognising that our future leaders might not be actually well, – sorry, our leaders of the world might not be listening to this show, but I reckon the next generation of leaders are going to take over and just kick, kick butt. So what, what, let's make it as simple as possible. What do, what do federal, state and whatever government levels in Australia need to do to transition towards these renewable uh, liquid sources of fossil fuels? Yeah, and I mean dumb it down, you know, just – Yep, let's keep it simple 101. One, invest in the production and the plants. So, so invest in the projects. Plants. Yep, the processing plants. So basically grow more plants. Well, okay. More sugar so let, no, look, no, let's no. make, let's build the plants. And we need oh, government so, so, to help the, okay, capital. Okay, capital okay, investment. We need capital in investment. Yeah, okay. To build the plant. $150 well, what you, million. Okay, okay great. So let, let's just dumb this down. Governments love stimulating economies. Stimulate it that way. We can build roads. We can build tunnels. Why don't we build plants? So tick – Box done. Regional jobs. So, and sorry, well, how much money are we talking about? You're saying is $150 million for one processing plant? At We're looking, yeah for, a, yeah, for a commercial, for a full commercial ethanol or biodiesel production facility, we'd be looking around that. Okay, and what's your return on investment on that? Oh, gosh. No, 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 I'm just thinking there might be some people out there with a bit of coin behind them to go, okay, if I put $150 million, how long is it going to take me to get my money this back? This has been on? the problem. You just highlighted the gap there. What? Is that we, it, doesn't, it doesn't look like a safe environment to invest here, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. So no one wants to invest when there's no policy, there's no certainty, there's no frameworks. You hear the national bloody conversations that go on overseas where people probably laugh the hell out of Australia because we're still like, oh, that's all right, we'll just dig another hole or we'll, we can get yeah, stuff but, out of the earth. But yeah, but hold on. I'm, I can't from a private business background, right? And business and, and, and innovation, like that, that's all about risk taking. Mm. So these these plants that you're talking about, it's also first to market. You know, if you've got the real estate and you've invested in first, and the policy comes in in five years, you've taken that risk. So 
Yes, it is about policies, but it's also about who's going to actually come down to Australia and go, wow, there's a, there's a lot of land here. You know, we've got to grow some sugar cane and make some, you know, eventually it's going to happen. It's just like what you yeah. said. It's an educated risk though. Obviously, like $150 million for a processing plant, that's going to create a lot of jobs just in the design, construction and management operation of that plant. Even if it, and, and to be honest, I look at some of the infrastructure we put around Southeast Queensland in terms of water infrastructure. We've spent billions of dollars building desalinization plants, water recycling infrastructure. We can, we can basically take our treated poo and wee from one side of Southeast Queensland to the other in the off chance that we actually might run out of water. We've got desal plants literally mothballed that cost us one or two billion dollars. We, we haven't switched them on. So in terms of risk environment, we have no regard. Well, to be honest, it's almost we we, we find it. Come on, mate! We, don't, we, we do don't spend get cash. We do spend we do spend cash when we really break up feel a man. I need you. I, I look at something like a, a biofuel processing plant as a no-brainer. I know if I invest money. Well, hold on. Is it a no-brainer? Okay, great. So say I've got 150 big ones in my back pocket, Larissa. <laughs> I've got the plant. <laughs> Where do I get the actually plants from? How do I transport them to 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 this plant? You know, what, what does it cost me? You know, is there information out there available? Absolutely. We've already got a few blueprints already here in Australia and most of those production facilities, well, those refineries owns? are out in regional rural Queensland and New Perfect. South Wales. Well, who owns That's them? That's where they need to be. Who owns them? Now, who's, who's built them out in regional? Okay, first one, the biggest privately owned agriculture company in Australia, Manildra Group. They own their ethanol plant down Thumbs in Thumbs up to you guys. And Nara. Yep. Jeez, I like Next Nara. one is an ethanol plant in Western Queensland, the Western Downs out past Toowoomba at a place called Dolby. It's in the heart Dolby. of the feedstock. It's always around the feedstock. That makes the economic viability of okay. it. And that is owned by United Petroleum. Ooh. And obviously I was just in Cairns uh, last week. We were in Cairns on Sunday. Yeah, yeah. And obviously that would be a – Pretty sweet spot to put in a put in a, uh, a sugarcane processing plant to make um, a renewable uh, fossil fuels. Yeah, but hold on, sorry, unless I'm missing something. Ninety five percent of the sugarcane gets exported overseas. So, if I'm going to spend 150 big ones, I'm going to need some need some product, product coming in. Where, where am I going to get that from? Well, the feedstocks there. A lot of the the people that produce the sugar refineries. Making ethanol is another side product. product so it's, a, hustle. it's a byproduct. Exactly. So it's a side hustle. Okay. So because they separate and they create, you know, 10, 15 different streams of products out of that sugar that's crushed. Okay. The molasses, they use a different grade of molasses to go, oh, well, we'll just make and we'll tap into the ethanol market and we can ferment that. So we're actually, it's stacked onto so the it's side. So it's creating another revenue stream for the farmers. Diversification 101 right. is that the – any kind of biofuel facility creates an opportunity for farmers to be able to do crop swap rotational work on their farms and feed into another industry sector to create certainty for them. Mm. Instead of sending the sorghum to China. Sense. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like as a as a farmer, you'd be like, "Great, I've got another revenue stream." Yeah. Okay, great. So you've got an industry down the road that you know if all hell fails and you can't get the price that you want at the farm gate, you know that there's a plant down the road that's giving you certainty because they've got a contract with you to purchase so many tonne of sorghum for the next one or two years that you can feed into. So look at the economic benefits, jobs for locals, uh, environmental, significantly reduced uh, CO2. Yeah, and, and stimulating, stimulating the economy Absolutely. by, you know, capital investment, jobs, yeah. creating these plants. And it provides a greater level of uh, security in terms of that sort of risk of Transport not, security, yeah. security. So Keep the money in the country. Uh, uh, Don't send it to yeah, Korea. Am, am, I, am I missing something, Brad? 
Larissa, are we are we missing something? As in why it hasn't happened already? Well, yeah. Why? That's a stranglehold. Well, well, no, well, no, sorry, but le- look, politicians are not as dumb as they look. You know, they're not. They're not. And if it makes sense economically, and if it, it makes sense in the environment, and let's face it, the Liberal government of Australia are going to have to do something with climate change or unfortunately they will not get back in. So they've got, what, another two years of their term? They will make decisions in the next 12 months and then the 12 months up until the elections, they'll just go into election mode. So watch out in the next 12 months. They're going to have to do something or they won't get in. So my point is, if it makes sense in all these points that we've just talked about, why is it still getting blocked? Why? Is it the big business of the transportation? Is it the big business of the oil companies? What is... This, you know, there's got to be something, Brad. There is. There's blockage. It's a strangle. We yeah. call it the stranglehold but, of the but, petroleum industry. Okay, but who is strangling it? Like, is it is it who is it the petroleum companies making the money? You're going no. Well, because this is their market, and we're going to tap into their market. And the other part of this is is that they're the ones that enable the fuel into the market. Oh, That's so okay, okay, so, okay, now, okay, now, now we're getting to it. Yeah. So, bugger you, Australia! If you're going to start making your own fuel, we're not going to supply it, and you've got 21 days until you run out. Also, we're talking about down on the, the retail value. That's how they, it logistically gets out to everybody, into the market. It, we have to feed the fuels through the petroleum well, industry. I, I just said this morning, we we're driving down the motorway. I said, God, that's one job I wouldn't want, which is driving, you know, petroleum around yeah. tonight. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But yeah. you think about how many trucks are on the road out there delivering fuel, producing CO2 emissions. Yeah. It's, so the government, say the government say, all right, all the fuel in Australia now must have a 10% alternative renewable product, whether it's ethanol, renewable diesel, like the alternative to fill it. You sit there as a petroleum owner and one of the big big companies and go, 10% of our fuel sales are completely vaporised now. Now you understand why our lobbying is so significant. Yeah. So- 10% of the market of dependency on fossil fuels here in this country, not just for one year, for two years and three years and for progressing onwards. This is where Brazil was smart because they enforced that those petroleum countries and companies over there had to be a part of the market so there wouldn't be that stranglehold going on. So we've got ourselves to blame, basically, because we've put ourselves in this yeah. position. Yeah, those petroleum companies should be investing in making ethanol so and biodiesel plants. They obviously have to be part of the solution. Well, they, you, you just said United Petroleum has got one out there. They so, do. so okay. So United Petroleum, they're the first cab off the rank. Biggest advocates of petroleum company in Australia. They advocate for the use of those fuels. What about BP? Mobile, Caltex, to name a few. Shell. What are they like? I think you're, I think our lawyers Viva. are calling us. <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, no, I'm just asking. No, but no, we've seen a lot of progressive action in the aviation sector. Like we've had Virgin fly. They're up to about 200 flights now on a trial biojet fuel yeah, blend. Yeah, yeah, I said that yeah it came out awesome. of Brisbane. Yeah, and a big part of there was a combination of fuel operators that control the fuel itself that goes in. So we call it like the hydrant that fills up those. They had to all get together and make a decision piece around the specs of that biojet fuel going in. So there is leadership with some of those countries, companies, but at the end of the day, they should be, be a part of investing and be a part of the future low carbon fuel market in this country because we know that we're relying on those fuels for a very, very long time. And then they can start tapping into the overseas demand because shipping has to come here and refuel and those obligations are for that transboundary work is that those shipping companies have got obligations to use like a 1% or 2 or 5% sustainable marine fuel. So there's an oft, there's an overseas market for us if we're producing those fuels here as well because there's demand overseas. 
because there's regulations and requirements overseas for those countries. If there's an opportunity for a plane to come here and fill up on a biojet fuel when there's a mandate for their own company, of course. Why would you not? There's an opportunity there for an airport to scoop up another flight system now. So we're talking about change before and if you were if you were Say if you're a Prime Minister, Larissa Rose, you, you've 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 set a goal of sorry, your first thing you're going to do, you're going to invest with capital into yep. the construction and design implementation of processing plants in probably rural uh, areas across Australia. What's next? What, what's what's next sort of action you would take? Investment, absolutely. First, second, policy. What sort of policy? There would be first of all, there would be a mandate. So let's put a framework together to incentivise the uptake and use of lower carbon fuels. So a transition plan. So that might be by 2022, all fuels in Australia will have a 5% biofuel blend, Mm. renewable fuel blend. By 2025, we'll have that kind of transition. Also a part of that will be some, I guess, like a low carbon incentivised mechanism, pricing mechanism that would support companies and businesses to transition their heavy fuel portfolio over to the use and uptake of those fuels mm-hmm. and they can be a part of that future plan. There needs to be a low carbon fuel policy program in any company that has a huge heavy fuel use and will mm. for a very long time. Some of the biggest construction companies in Australia will be reliant on fossil liquid fossil fuels for a very long time. They need to be incentivized on how they transition their internal fuel portfolio over and across to renewable fuels. Are you thinking about it like from our point of view? Like we must have 35 vehicles, 40 vehicles under ocean protected. That's trucks, salespeople, Bradleys, you know, you name it. I mean, I don't even know what our fuel bill is, but it would be bloody expensive. You think about Mm. it, so called 100 bucks a week. Yeah. So that'd be four or five grand. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you take that on a large scale. So if you're Lindsay Fox, from, you know, Fox, you know, trucking. Mm. His fuel bill will be huge. Mm. It's just one transportation company. Mm-hmm. It really blows your mind when you really, really start to think about it and the dependency on that. Not only if you're a trucking company, but as you say, if you're a, you know, a construction or, a, you know, a, a builder, you know, how do you rely on getting your, your stuff to your site? 24 billion litres of diesel used last year in Australia. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 24 billion, billion litres. It sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Well, it is a lot, Bradley. He's <laughs> very profound this morning, Brad. I don't know what it is. You sleep all right last night, mate? I did, yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow, it sounds like a lot. Okay, so 
We've talked a lot about, um, I guess, you know, Larissa, you being the, the queen of biofuel. Who else is out there? What are the, what are the groups? You know, if people are listening out there right now and go, I want to fight with Larissa, how, how do they, you know, are there groups? How do they get a hold of you? What, you know, do you need to gather support? Do you want me and Brad, to, or Brad and I, sorry, Helen, to march up to Canberra with you? What, what, what can people at home, the individual people, because we're a solution-based podcast, what can they do at home? First of all, understand that there probably is an opportunity for you to use E10 at your local service station. Okay, so number one, and actually, <laughs> no, my partner Kath wondered why her car, her car um, wasn't going very well and she just used any single one. So she was running her Volkswagen on E10 and it really, really crapped out. So you've got to check that your car can actually do it. Correct, is E10 a, compatible. Is there a website that people can go to right now and find out where their, if their car is? Yeah, it's one called E10 OK. Put in your rego and it'll let you know. We'll put that at the bottom of the show notes. Cool. So number one, go on, do something for the environment and find out if your vehicle can take it. And if it can, do it. If it can't, find out what it will cost to change your vehicle over. You could, yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yep, for cool. sure. Number one. Number two, how else can people get on board apart from their own fuel usage? From here on in, I guess it starts to talk about having conversations to do with policy and stuff and being a part of industry groups and associations that support in and advocate for these fuels to be used. I am a national manager for an industry, uh, for a, for a campaign, a global campaign called Below 50 Australia. Uh, and it is around pushing for the uptake and use of low carbon fuels, but you can obviously join any kind of group that's supporting and advocating any low carbon solutions. There's a few other industry associations out there, but it's a, it's a tricky one because there's not a lot of us in this sector. Mm. You know, it's not like we're, you know, there's an ACF or an whatever, you know, all those different kind of conservation groups and environmental groups. There's not a lot in biofuels. Oh mate, can't come to a stormwater conference. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's maybe a hundred people in a room. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, okay. Sure. What's on your mind, Brad? I'm just thinking, are you going into these various companies like BP, Exxon, et cetera, and sort of saying, hey, look. Do you think yep. Do you think they'll take a call from the queen of biofuel? <laughs> I don't know. Hello, uh, Larissa here. Um, I'd like to speak to your CEO, please. <laughs> Bugger off. I don't think it's ma- – ma- look, mate. Uh, Larissa's go, a go very under, dynamic individual. Go undercover, maybe? Dress up like you? <laughs> Dress up like me. You wish. <laughs> well, Larissa's actually button. got longer hair than you. Well, no, maybe. <laughs> so – have actually a big part of the Below 50 push, um, which is a campaign that's come out of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, has been around working on the demand side. So sitting down and having those conversations with some of the biggest fuel users in Australia, which I have already done and being a, mm. a, done a fair bit of work in and taken leadership, which is all behind the background stuff. There's no camera, there's no social media, there's nothing on that stuff. Mm. Is because it's quite behind the door conversations around how do you, I've had one with a big mining company in Australia, international mining company around the world around what is it and what does it mean for your business model to transition to lower carbon fuels. Basically, how do you start using more ethanol? How do you start using more biodiesel? And can you start looking at supporting and doing some trials on the renewable diesel, whether that's through your earth moving machinery, your cranes, your, you know, heavy D double D loser dozer machines, any other kind of earth moving machinery. So that is where the work has to be done for someone like myself Mm. is having those really chunky conversations with those biggest fuel users to go, well, what is it going to take for you to start looking at whether it's branding or you've showcased that in this 
type of excavator. You used a 5% renewable diesel blend and it was all fine and nothing happened and the engine didn't blow up and you got better CO2 emission output and your tailpipe emissions were much better and you could tick off your carbon credentials on doing that and better air quality because at the end of the day, everybody, the stuff that comes out of the back of your tailpipe is so toxic and carcinogenic Mm -hmm. and there's a little particle in the tailpipe called 2.5 PM, 2.5 without getting too techy, Mm. that has the capacity to go into your lungs, straight through into your bloodstream and is the most carcinogenic cancer born. I'll I'll dumb that down. People that want to, you know, kill themselves, basically they get their car fumes, they chuck it in the car and what do you know, you're gone. So you imagine that on a a, a mass scale. Cumulatively. That's more to do with carbon monoxide. Okay, but you, it's that bad for you. Okay, <laughs> absolutely. Not getting to They go into our airshed. Don't be silly. Like if you're going to run along a Pacific Highway in one on one of the major cities and states, mm. have fun with that because the exercise that you're doing is probably not is getting eradicated by the amount of pollutants you're breathing as you run down Oops. the main queen, <laughs> the main queen street or wherever you are in well, your own town. I rode, I, I rode my push bike from the Gold Coast to Adelaide, <laughs> 3,500 kilometres. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'll be so fit, maybe I'm not so fit. Just <laughs> back on the cough. <laughs> I'm probably fitter than Brad by the last <laughs> There's hope for you, Jamie. You wish. Still not a sexy. Oh, God, good father. <laughs> But oh. look, look, we've talked about a lot of things, uh, but uh, we should point out the fact that Larissa, apart from being the queen of uh, biofuels, wears many hats. Like I'm, I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile as we speak. Stalking. And, and you got renewable fuel consultant, which is a given. Tech. Director of Glowing Green Australia. Yeah, this is very cool. Let's have a chat about this. So tell us about Growing Green Australia. Yes, I started that company when I was in my economics class in my master's having, degree. Having another child. Uh, <laughs> I just had it. Yeah. Let's just do another one. Yeah. <laughs> so I built that business model. So I was sitting there going, okay, I'm going to start a business. And I actually registered my business in my economics class. Wow. And went, going green Australia. That's what I'm going to call it. I'm going to build an environmental consultancy company that's going to support me to be able to do what I needed to do. This is about being sustainable right now, sustainability 101 on I'm a mom, um, I'm building this industry sector and I want to get into this space and I need to probably work from home for a little bit. So Glowing Green Australia started about 10 years ago. I gained some contracts really quickly straight away while I was still at university doing report writing for flora, flora and fauna assessment work. Wow. And then through that time, I split it and converted it into two different frameworks, the model. One side is doing all the regulations and reporting and all the assessment work that you guys know and you need to do. And then the other side is around environment mental education. I'm so big on building the leaders of the future, whether that's from early learning all the way through to Glowing Green Australia's internship program we have, yeah, where I, I take on cool. yep, take on all the university students to actually help strengthen the bridge. And you would know, Brad, from coursework to actually what we do in industry, especially with environmental assessment. Oh yeah, I see it all the time. Like I, I lecture at uni and I know you do as well. Like you see all the, the, the students really well-intentioned and enthusiastic. They often get the enthusiasm sucked out of them uh, after three or four years at university. But they, the university degree rarely prepares them appropriately to for work in the real world. And there's a real leap, A, to try and get a job, B, probably more importantly, get a job that you actually really want to do. And that suits your personality and, and interests. And that universities just don't prepare them at all for that. And so, some universities insist on a six or 12 week um, sort of uh, work experience, but sometimes that can just be a boxing exercise. I remember my, the students in my year spent six weeks um, sorting trash at a landfill, and that was their professional placement, which was just ridiculous. What did um, you do? 
I actually worked at uh, Logan Water uh, looking at odour in sewer sewer systems, would you believe? Um, no, no, I, I believe, I believe yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's you to a teammate full of <laughs> Takes one to know one, but uh, and speaking of lecturing, you you do lecture lecture at uh, Bond University. You're an adjunct lecturer. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an alumni, and I'm all about setting really big radical targets for yourself. And there's like no non-negotiables. So I was like, I'm going to be a lecture. I'm going to be a lecturer here. I'm actually going to lecture here one day. And I did. And it came, it came about, but you know what? I put in some hard yards doing some solid free guest lecturing at that yeah. university as well. One to hone in and develop my skill yeah. sets around that and understand how you do it, what's going on and feeling it. And then the opportunity came for me to start lecturing climate change and environmental management. And obviously there's a lot of capacity from my skill sets from doing the work and writing the work and working with organizations and and doing all of that industry work that can feed into the relatability of what that is in the course. So I love it. I and love obviously climate change is a big issue, obviously, at the moment, in particular in the media with all the protests. So what's your take on sort of all the, the climate change activism that's undertaking? Do you have any glue on your hands? <laughs> no, no, and there's no paint either from okay. doing a but what, what, what's sign. your what's your thoughts about all no, this no, activism? No. Like, like you see, Jeremy mentions the glue, people are gluing themselves to footpaths and disrupting on a mass scale in – Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, CBD environments. I mean, causing a lot of havoc, trying to raise awareness and attention. Ha- ha- havoc? That's yeah. Helen, Helen will- Havoc. 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 Yeah. H-A-V-O-C. I thought you said Havoc. He may have thrown a D in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Havoc? I don't know. Had it. Had it. <laughs> Helen, <laughs> I'm, 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 trying, I'm trying, to, trying to get him. Grammar back but, but up, what's your, what's your feelings of, uh, what's your thoughts on all the activism that's uh, going on at the moment? Not into the extremity component. I'm all about embedding knowledge. So if you're having a really great dynamic conversation at the beautiful surf club like I am now, and I've actually enabled five people with a power card to understand what's really going on in Australia around our energy security or what's going on with climatic conditions or what's actually stuck in our air shed and what atmosphere and particles are stuck in there because of tailpipe emissions or, you know, over excess and use of other types of products that are causing that. I'm all about that. So, I get annoyed. So this is what happened for me in the lead up to the federal election. There was a community forum and there was 300 people in the room and they were all sitting there and they were in the whole anti-Adani bandwagon. And because I'm saying that with that tone, it doesn't mean I'm endorsing it, but I understand that there's a big dependency on energy in this country and in this world. So everyone was in that whole bandwagon, nah, 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 hammering the politicians, saying, why have you got any of this and that and everything? And I stood up and I first of all said, well, if any of you guys have got gas bottles, you better get rid of them because if you do, you're supporting coal seam gas mm. that comes out of this country. So one, don't be a hypocrite. Everyone in this room is a complete hypocrite and we can't get away from being a hypocrite because we are reliant on the energy matrix, yep. the fossil fuel one. Secondly, Everyone here is talking about renewable energy and the politicians are talking about, oh, we've got a hydrogen solution pathway for 2050 and we've got, you know, solar and we've got wind policies. But I stood up and said, none of you guys have got a low carbon fuel policy. You actually don't even realise the other half of the pie chart is liquid fossil fuels and there's no policy. And all you 250 people behind me who are heavily reliant on liquid fossil fuels, how about you start chanting for us to have a low carbon fuel policy or an alternative renewable fuel policy program. We've got a renewable energy one. Why don't we have one for renewable fuels? 
But you don't know because you don't have the knowledge and that's the situation. It's knowledge is power. People out of that room spoke to me more than the four politicians that are at the front that day. They had no flying idea how reliant this country was on fossil fuels. And do you know what? I actually take your point because Brad will probably say the same thing about veganism and he's a very passionate vegan and and sometimes that vegan movement, it's all about aggression and it's, you know, let's go raid some farms and whatever. But if you sit down, like you say, and educate people and, and, and really give them the knowledge and empower themselves, you're going to get a far better result. Without a doubt. And I see this. Uh, Angry this, vegan. This is the point I've been trying to make with ocean plastic pollution as well. Like I, I honestly think that there's three big environmental issues facing the planet, deforestation, climate change, and ocean plastic. And from my mind, I really want to use ocean plastic as the template to solve the other two. Ha, ha, and, and, and I'm sure Jeremy would agree with me. We've actually been reasonably successful in a very short period of time in relation to ocean plastic pollution in this country what have, what have we done that's been a little bit different to others like in terms of say climate change we've focused uh, on the solutions we, we've gone look there's an obvious problem here for sure we're not just out there bagging the 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 source of that problem in terms of yeah we hate coca-cola or we hate you know the cigarette manufacturers or you guys are you know no 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 that doesn't get anyone anywhere all all you do is you come across as a ranting whinger and Look, from our perspective, you've got to, you've got to bring people on the journey and you've got to not just come to someone with a uh, problem, but also the solution. So for example, there was a, there's a federal politician in my local electorate. I won't mention any names, but he actually sent a letter out saying, Hey, uh, I'm your local member. I'm looking for solutions for ocean plastic. I sent him a letter last week about, Hey, I'm talking, I'm an expert in ocean plastic and environmental engineer, 20 years experience. Can I come talk to you about some of the solutions? He was like, Yep. I'm meeting him this afternoon. So. That is really effective advocacy and sort of it's bringing about change. And I honestly think the the climate change activists of the world and probably the angry vegans of the world need to take a leaf out of the books of others in terms of what drives significant and effective change. Well, actually, and with that, I reckon we should go get, is it Dara, the the manager here at the Palm Beach Surf Life Saving Club? Absolutely. Because he's made change. This is your local club, isn't it? Absolutely. So we here today are looking at the amazing Palm Beach Ocean here on the Gold Coast and we're physically at Palm Beach Surf Club and I really wanted to ensure that we created a correlating theme here and the reason why we're here is I wanted to introduce you guys to Dara who is the Executive Manager of Palm Beach Surf Club. Welcome. So go Welcome. For it. How are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, good morning to you all. Tell us what you've done here because um, from what you told me before, you're one of the first clubs to create an initiative around plastic waste. Yeah, so obviously yeah, we as a surf club, our uh, role initially started out as uh, protecting humans from the ocean where now we see in tandem to that a role in protecting the ocean from humans So, uh, and the impact of humans. And so we see, uh, I guess, firsthand on the beach, the impact of waste uh, washing up uh, on the shores. Uh, and that obviously caused us a lot of concern. So we have a lot of uh, champions within our team who are very passionate about reducing uh, the impact we have on, on the ocean. So uh, we've really just harnessed their uh, energy and passion and we've put some strategies around how we can uh, assist. So let's talk about some of these strategies because you, you said when we first got here, you, you were ripping up the, the old deck and you found heaps of uh, straws. Give us, give us 
um, some strategies that you've put into place here in this club and then maybe other people can listen and, and see what they can do in their own life and own businesses. Yeah, so I guess uh, an analogy, we were probably a little bit frozen by, from fear of how much work was involved in, in uh, becoming more sustainably responsible so uh, or more environmentally responsible. Uh, but then I guess we, we stumbled across uh, a whole stack of black plastic straws underneath the deck you mentioned um, and that was just one item that we could immediately redress by no longer serving those two customers. So, uh, so aside from collecting all that waste, uh, we then ensured we weren't adding to that problem by uh, handing out another hundred straws every uh, every day. So that was, uh, I guess, the first little initiative, and that just then uh, identified for us that it, was, it wasn't a huge project that had to have a whole team behind it. It was just individual projects, one at a time, that would um, amount to something over time. And uh, as you said, we recently became the first surf club to become accredited by the Surf Rider, surf Rider Foundation as ocean friendly, which you know we found very surprising uh, that we were the first uh, surf club. Um, being, you know, given our location and the nature of our, you know, our purpose for being, which is um, you know, to, to, to be a, um, a responsible member of the of the community. Mate, it's fantastic. So, if um, so, you, the straws one thing uh, we mentioned before about vending machines. You, you're, you're trying to look at your supply chain there. Yeah, so all of our supply chain, uh, we have uh, spoken to about reducing, you know, so we don't accept deliveries in styrofoam uh, containers anymore. Uh, we try and send back uh, packaging with our uh, uh, deliveries rather than... Uh, Just on the styrofoam, so you don't accept styrofoam deliveries? Correct, yeah. And, so, ha- and how's that been on your suppliers? It's been challenging for them, but I think, you know, it, it's probably an early insight for them, uh, and we wouldn't be the only voice. I'm sure there's one or two other uh, of their supply, or their customers that are telling them the same thing. But, uh, you know, so it presents them a challenge. They then have to go back and look at their processing and their uh, methods to ensure that they are finding new ways to protect their produce so the produce comes to us in the best possible uh, condition and then we pass it on to our customers so you know um, precious items like oysters or um, uh, what else might come in styrofoam traditionally so yeah particularly seafood I guess it has to be protected it's an economical way of providing uh, I guess temperature protection for those uh, sensitive products but they just have to find new more responsible ways which is which is great in itself you know by you taking a stance and going no we're not going to accept it means that it's getting moved up the supply chain and then they're going to go, well, if we want his business, we're going to have to think about what we're doing. And they'll have to probably put pressure on their supply chain. So it's a fantastic initiative. And how's it been from uh, your patrons' point of view? You know, like, are you getting seeing an increase in people through the door? Are you getting lots of big high fives? What's the community saying about it? Yeah, community are very uh, supportive of everything. And uh, they've reacted really, really uh, positively to us as a club uh, following the uh, ocean-friendly accreditation. So we work very closely with the local high school, uh, Palm Beach, Corumban uh, State high school they have a sustainability committee they're very proactive um, in how they want to engage with local business community um, so we uh, work with them very closely we work with other local organizations that have a, have a similar passion so and are other surf clubs looking at you guys as a bit of a template and copying what you guys do or are you sharing that sort of knowledge and success yeah I think we have to get more sophisticated in how we share it so we initially started out we were fielding calls from surf clubs asking okay how did you do that how can we do it which was you know really uh, we didn't expect that initially in hindsight we probably should have so we weren't necessarily prepared to easily share that um, so we, it was just verbal or we'll send you an email so we didn't have I guess a templated document that we could send to them that said you know here's the 10 steps to follow here's the first phone call to make so um, had we I guess preempted that those inquiries we would have had something ready to just send out straight away but so we've helped all those clubs and I'm sure we'll continue to field more calls well there's a lady sitting over next to me I'm sure she's going to give you a bit of help in writing some templates but I mean <laughs> there, there we go free plug where you go Loretta Thanks. excellent yeah, 
grown, Australia. Yeah, grown green <laughs> Australia. No, no, but but that's really important. It's not only to um, – and, and we see it all the time is people need to celebrate their successes, certainly on an environmental stage, and go – Hey, look at us. We're actually doing bloody good. I mean, you're, you're not, you're not the harbour diggers with an annual turnover of $34 million. I'm, I don't know if that's the case, but you know, you're not the biggest club in Australia, but yet you've, you've bitten off, you know, something bigger than anyone else has done. And you need to celebrate that. And, and we all do really. So, I mean, from our point of view, the t- couple of thousand people that listen to this podcast will know that Palm Beach is now, you know, environmentally friendly. Um, but how else can we help? Um, Brad, you've got any ideas? I just, I'm just hearing this conversation. I just, I, I get back to what we were talking about before about, you know, Australia is a little country uh, punching above its weight, you know, Palm Beach, Palm Beach Surf Club, you know, it's it's not a ginormous surf club by any stretch of imagination, but, you know, it's doing what they can do in their beautiful part of the world to appropriately protect the oceans from humans. And I think that's fantastic. We, we Ideally, we use that sort of uh, strategy or plan or what you guys have done and actually look to roll it around all the surf clubs. Uh, I just think it's I think it's a great story. It's fantastic. And it's key wo- two key words that come out of this for me is ownership and the capacity to showcase that. Yeah. And that's exactly what's going on. That's getting back to that conversation we had. How do we make change? We start taking knowledge, take that knowledge to create ownership around that and then create that solution and that change and showcase that. Show it off. Well, with that, we might have to wrap this up because I've got to jump on a plane and Brad's got to go get a haircut. But um, <laughs> look, thank you so much for having us here at Empami. Um And thank you very much for um, obviously giving us a location to, to, to um, have this podcast. I'll put a case of beer on, on New Zealand uh, beating uh, Ireland in the World Cup because I think because you lost to Japan, I think you face us in the quarters. Do you want to accept that bet or not? Oh, I would uh, happily uh, accept that bet and double it. Uh, so uh, <laughs> we have been very strategic. <laughs> he in has that. got a readily supply of beer. I think he wins. So there's two cases. Okay, and, so, and the reason for my confidence that our, our, our cunning plan was to come second in a group so we could face the All Blacks in the quarterfinals when they're most vulnerable. And, uh, yeah. So there's two cases. So, that, so when we face each other, if you win, I give you two cases. So it's not about the quarters or it's just when we face each other, it's Correct. two cases of beer. And uh, as long as we get to sit down and drink at least one of those beers oh, together. I know exactly uh, where we're going to sit. It's called the Palm Beach Surf Life Saving Club. But well, I, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, just one last thing for me. I guess the, the final thing uh, I would say is that uh, we've really been blown away by what we've discovered in our local community through uh, getting the accreditation. You know, we, we have been approached or come across organisations such as uh, Glowing Real Australia who have been on our doorstep and we hadn't come across them before. So there's so much in your local area that you're probably not aware of until you go looking or you stumble across them. So, um, yeah, I think that was something that really blew me away. Oh, look, just uh, for my personal note, just thank you guys so much for coming on our show. Today. I have personally learnt so much and it's been fantastic. It's not hard, mate. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a big, empty bucket. <laughs> but, yeah, thank you both so much for coming on our show and uh, go Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Larissa, thanks. Thank you very much. And look, I think we're going to have to keep talking because there's so much out of uh, her mind that we I don't think we even got to today. But thanks for coming on our on our podcast. We've really loved it, and um, we'll see you next time. Oh, you're welcome. It's been nourishing. Thank you. Nourishing. Love that word. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.